Hello and welcome to the Creative Scramble. My name is Cal Thompson. And my name is Matty Singh. And on this episode, we have one of my old student friends, I would say, you, uh, Enos Desjardins. Have I pronounced that right, Enos? Almost, yeah. Enos Desjardins would be the right, Desjardins. The right way. But, um... See, I've never had to pronounce your surname. No, um, a quick one. intro into Enos. He is a sound designer, sound effects editor. Um, he's worked on shows such as Black Mirror, The Sweeney, the remake of The Sweeney with Ray Winston and Plan B, games such as Need for Speed, documentaries such as Food for Thought, and a variety of other feature films featuring actors such as Sam Rockwell. Recently worked on a project with Danny Boyle. He's kind of a big deal, and I'm quite impressed <laughs> with your, your resume so far. Well, it's, it's definitely been sort of growing over the last few years. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you kind of get, get started in, in your career and start doing projects and once before you realize it, you're five or six years into it and you've you look back and you're like damn done quite a lot of a lot of stuff and um yeah it's really picked up in the last few years it's amazing mate i mean first of all just could you just give us a brief overview of your journey and how you got into sound sure yeah i mean i come to i, I arrived to film sound as many do through music so I, I used to play in bands growing up and and um eventually found myself recording my own bands and then friends bands and and at some point decided I wanted to potentially work professionally in the music industry. Um, so after trying a few different places, ended up in Manchester, um, which is where we Yay, met. Yay, Manchester! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I kind of the, the intention was to study audio engineering and, and end up working as a mixing and recording engineer um, in the music industry. Um, I never really thought I'd get into film, um, but you know. I guess growing up, no one kind of grows up thinking I'm going to be a film sound designer. Everyone wants to be in a band or, you know, be a music producer or whatever. Um, so yeah, during during my studies, I done in FutureWorks in Manchester, which is where I studied. Um, that's where I met you. That's yep, where, that's where I, we I met. also went to FutureWorks. So exactly. yeah, <laughs> that's where all the good stuff happens. <laughs> um, yeah, they had a mod, they had like a two or three month module on film sound, and I did that, and um, very quickly realized that that was really something I really enjoyed. So I started doing student projects, um, picked up like both in FutureWorks and then picked up a few other little low to no budget shorts and things like that um, from the broader sort of uh, circle of filmmakers in the UK. Uh, and then I got really lucky towards the end of my, my studies that um, there was a, a supervising sound editor and sound designer called Tim Preble in New Zealand who runs a really popular sound uh, blog called Music of Sound. Um, and he happened to just be basically putting out a call for people um, to apply to basically become an, an intern. And he just did this as a one-off and he, he basically just wanted to give something back um, to the, the up and coming generation um, in terms of mentoring someone. Um, so I got lucky enough, me and, me and another guy got lucky enough to be picked up as, the, um, as his virtual interns. And then basically he mentored us for a year. Amazing, amazing. So what sort of things did you work on in that time with him? So actually, yeah, it's a, it a funny one because I haven't actually ever met him in person yet. Um, during, during the internship, it was completely virtual. So it was all done via emails, Skype chats, um, you know, chats on, on, online. And one of the first things he said was, A, I don't want to teach anyone Pro Tools or any of the software stuff. I expect you all to know that this is not a, a training thing to learn software. It's about learning film sound and how storytelling can be supported with it um and he also said you won't be getting any work from this so i'm not expecting you to help me on any projects as such so it wasn't actually i didn't work with him on, on anything um 
So it's it purely purely just kind of giving something back for to the new generation, I guess. He, he didn't charge anything. You know, we didn't he didn't expect anything from us. Um, and sometimes he'd get busy and kind of go quiet for a bit, and other times he'd he'd um, he'd be very reactively sort of educating us. Um, but it, invaluable stuff. I mean, everything from from kind of he was all he's all about script and script reading and analyzing scripts. So he kind of taught us how important. Um, you know how film sound is all about supporting the story and not just creating cool sounds. So it's all about analyzing the script um, and understanding kind of the drama dramaturgy of script writing and sort of the structure of story and storytelling and character development and then sort of supporting that. And that's really that's really kind of set me off uh, career wise in, into having that as a main focus with things. Really, um, a, lot, a lot of people think that film sound is just like fixing fixing the stuff that was done wrong or kind of there was a bit crap. Um, no man, it's or the, adding gunshots. It's the art. <laughs> it's the art. I mean, I've I think I've mentioned to you before films like obviously horror films do it best. That's because without sound, they're not scary. And other than Quiet Place, yeah, A Quiet Place was brilliant. Yeah, that was really seen cool. A Quiet it's Place. Still a lot yeah. of sound. Of sound oh, that was it. so good. Well, that was cool because it was um it was a film that not only was the sound well done, but it was a film that had sound. As a as a as a thing, uh, in the core of its actual concept, it wasn't just you know from script level. It was all about sound, so it kind of it was a cool I think a cool space to then explore the sound work. You know, once they actually got to doing doing the post production, because the sound was embedded in the story so well. Awesome, awesome. Um, um so I mean, after around about this period, so studies have ended. This towards the end of this mentorship. Did you kind of have an idea of what you wanted to do and have an, a plan of action of how am I going to go about achieving these whatever goals you had? Not really. I mean, at the time when when I finished uh, my studies at FutureWorks, I'd I had already done a few, you know, a bunch of short films, a couple of really small budget indie indie films, um, and I was still kind of keeping my options open and didn't really know where my career would would end up heading towards. Um, so at the time. I did definitely by the time I was kind of halfway into my internship with with Tim. Uh, by then, I, I had kind of realized or accepted that film sound is definitely what I want to be doing. Um, I found like I love I love music and I, I, I used to love writing and and recording and arranging my own stuff and other people's stuff. But I found myself that uh, if I was purely recording and mixing other people's stuff, I found that it, there was less creative input for me. Whereas in film, even though the film is not my creation per se you know there's a director and a writer and it's their project you're serving but in terms of the sound department i felt i could be much more kind of i could hold more ownership of everything that is sound in it and yeah, do, you, do you get kind of given a brief when you're on these kind of projects to, to to construct the sound with a particular sort of feel in mind or does is a director expected you to interpret the script and and, and the footage in a particular way or what I'm trying to get at is, is, do you have much creative control in that, in that space, or does a director often come in and sort of direct? Yeah, so it depends completely on what role I'm, I'm kind of fulfilling in each project. So my career currently is is, is sort of um, divided into two, two different roles. So on some projects I'll be brought on by a studio or or by a, a more established supervising sound editor. Uh, and they'll hire me to be the, their effects, their sound effects editor or sound designer. And on, on those projects, what, what will happen is the supervising sound editor is the person that is the head of department in, in the sound in the sound team, and they usually have the the relationship with the director 
So they will have usually got on board, you know, early on in the project and be part of the journey with the director early on. And then eventually, once post-production starts, then they'll put a team together, which usually consists of, you know, a dialogue editor who'll handle everything that's dialogue and, and dialogue re- replacement and ADR and all that. And then there's a Foley team that comes on board doing all the footsteps and moves and all, all the sounds that actors make that don't involve dialogue. And then the rest of the team is completed by sound effects editor or editors, uh, which is what I do, which is like all the backgrounds, ambient sounds, vehicles, if you're doing a car chase, doors, airplanes, spaceships, dinosaurs, you know, anything that is You're dialogue, all the cool basically. stuff. You are all the cool stuff, basically. <laughs> basically yeah. <laughs> so, and then the, the only missing thing then is the music. So um, the composer is then the last sort of person of, not really of the sound team, but kind of of the soundtrack. So a lot of the projects that I've worked on, like some of the biggest stuff, like, you know, Black Mirror or this this recent um, Danny Boyle TV series called Trust, or other things like ITV's uh, Marcella, all these projects like that, um, and including the Sweeney, I was not supervising those projects, but I was purely doing all the sound effects editing. Um, so on something like the Sweeney, I'd be involved with all the gun shootouts and the car chases uh, and stuff like that. Um, so on those projects, I don't really get much, I don't get a brief or that much of a relationship with the director. So my relationship will be with the supervising sound editor who then have the, his sessions with the director and will then sort of take the brief from the director and pass it down to his team. Okay, so there's still an element of creativity in, in what oh, you yeah, do. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a huge element of creativity, but it is, if you're an effects editor, you're sort of following the brief that the supervising sound editor has put together based on his conversations or her conversations with the director. Um, so a lot of projects where I'm sound effects editing, that's that's kind of what I do. Um, but then other projects, um, I'm, I'm, I'm also building that side of my career in which I am the sound supervisor or officially known as the supervising sound editor. So um, on those kind of projects, I'll be the one that has a relationship with the director and I'll be brought on by the director or by the producers. Often and ideally uh, brought on way before the film has been shot. So I have I, I kind of get involved um, to some extent during the development stages and even during the, the script, script writing stage. And sometimes it's something as simple as just getting early drafts of the script and sort of being part of the of 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 the conversation at that, at that stage. And on those projects, you do, you get very much creative freedom because you're basically asked to be part of the the creative process, um, and you can have a lot of impact even in the way some scenes are sometimes shot or you know certain props that might be introduced based on a sound idea that we we come up with. Um, so it goes much beyond just uh, getting on board at the end and, and doing the actual literal editing work. And you can have a say in almost the way the story is crafted. Yeah, I mean, way, you're still yeah. serving the, the script and the director's vision, but you're yeah. you're contributing to potentially their their planning of how they're going to shoot a certain scene. Or like so, sometimes it's problem solving as well. Like something Sonic can kind of help tell tell something in the story that would maybe be too expensive or too difficult to, to tell visually. Um, so I didn't realize you were on set. Are you on set as a recordist? No, you, no. So I, how does that work? When I first started out, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier of, of like how did I start? When I, I didn't really know what direction my career would go. At that stage, I was kind of doing everything. Partly because there was no budget anyways to hire other people, and partly because I just wanted to learn all the different aspects of, of film sound. So when I was first, my first sort of couple of years after graduating in Manchester, um, I was doing projects where I'd be on set recording all the sound and then taking all of the posts on board, including dialogue editing, bits of Foley, all the effects editing and the mixing. Um, but eventually after, you know, after a couple of years, once I got my first break, which was the Sweeney, the, the, the Nick Love um, sort of feature remake of the, of the famous TV series, um, that was the first time I kind of worked purely as an effects editor 
under a supervisor um, who brought me on board. And um, and that was the first time I'd, I worked on a film that was released kind of theatrically in the country and, and did really well. And um, and from there from there onwards, I've sort of stopped, gradually sort of stopped doing location sound and um, kind of, I think, especially in the UK where the industry is fairly big, you find yourself um, specializing in, in a certain certain part of the sound process. Sure. I mean, just to refer back, mate, you know, when you, you mentioned the Sweeney there, did you feel like that was kind of the big break, so to speak, to what you're doing now? And, and like, how did that come about? Because I'm sure there's so many people that want to work on big feature films and stuff that are in this industry. How did it come about for yourself? Yeah, it's, it's funny looking back because at the time when things happen, you kind of, you don't really realise things. But now when you look back, you can, you can definitely see, like I, I've only been working professionally for about, I'd say six, six years, six, seven years. Um, and when you look back now, you can clearly see like two or three major turning points career-wise where a certain project sort of gave you a step up, gave me a step up and then eventually led to sort of consolidating on that level of work and then eventually taking another step and sort of progressing that way and and the Sweeney was definitely the first the first big step for me that kind of gave me a break um up until then I was still living in Manchester and I was still kind of doing some part-time teaching um and I was working part-time in bars and clubs and restaurants and stuff just to kind of pay the bills so you know I wasn't yet living off um sound um and eventually, two years after graduating, roughly thanks to the Sweeney mostly, and then cl- nearly followed by the um, the Need for Speed video game, um, all these projects were happening in London. So I eventually decided I found myself coming down to London quite often for these projects. Um, so eventually, I decided that I, I was going to move down um, and kind of base myself down here. Um, so yeah, the, the Sweeney was. The, I had met these uh, one of the guys who was involved in the film, Mark Spector, who was a dialogue editor. Uh, I had met him, I think, through some online forums, and you know how you get these forums where people, some people talk about stuff or whatever. And I think I'd, I'd met through that, and I'd done some some of the early projects I did in Manchester when I was still at FutureWorks at the school was um, like some Lord of the Rings like fan films. I remember. I yeah. Remember, yeah. So through through some of those, I, I had put I had met other people who uh, I put some calls out on like some of the Facebook groups and sort of, or um, might have been MySpace groups in those days. Um, oh, MySpace. I know, right? <laughs> I think I still got my account somewhere. Um, I should probably shut that down. But um, <laughs> yeah, burn it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> probably some embarrassing tracks on there or something. Um, but yeah, I, I had met a bunch of people through that project kind of online but I had put calls out to see if people wanted to get involved and help out you know it was a no it was a no pay thing so it was just uh kind of doing it for the fun of it and then one of the guys I met was based here in London and eventually we'd been talking over, over the next couple of years and we always said hey it'd be cool to work together at some point and then they basically took on the Sweeney they won the pitch for, for doing that um and before I knew it they, they were calling and saying hey we've got a big project it's the biggest thing we've done you know they had the biggest thing they had done at the time as well um, and they asked if I wanted to get involved to do some of the background sounds and ambient sounds. Um, so I was like, yeah, that's great. And I was, I was literally working from my bedroom in Manchester at the time. No way. Um, and then eventually one thing led to the, to the, to another and they were like, Hey, this, this stuff sounds great. Would you mind taking on some of the, the other elements of the sound effects, like some of the cars and guns? Um, so eventually they called me down to London and I based myself there for a few weeks and kind of helped out with a bunch of the guns and car stuff as well. Uh, and then by the end of it, they were kind of, they kind of said, "Hey, why don't you 
you know, what's your, what are your plans in terms of the future? Like, why don't you, um, like if you move down to London, we'd, we've got other things coming up that we'd love to have you involved with. And obviously it'd be easier if you're based here because we're based here. So it just turned to be that it just happened that this studio was, these guys were based here in London. So I was like, Hey, well, if, you know, if you, if that's the case, then I'd, I'd love to work with you on more stuff. Um, so that kind of prompted my move down to London. Did you find it scary taking that leap down to London? It was, yeah, it was. But I think like, in my personal life, there was a few things that went down at the time as well. I broke up with, with my like, girlfriend at the time. And so it seemed to be like a natural, natural sort of, uh, end of a, of a, of a sort of phase. Um, so I think that kind of helped take my decision to just move down and, and I, I knew eventually like, you know, I think things are getting better now, but, um, you know, L London's always been the bigger hub in the UK for, for film, especially higher end sort of, um, feature films. And I think the balance is, sl is slowly getting, getting better these days with, with things like media city in Manchester and, and different productions happening, um, up there. Um, but at the time, definitely was was very london centric um so for me it was it was something that i knew I, at some point i'd have to do if i wanted to work on higher end stuff i mean that's all that sounds really impressive obviously the the move has worked out well for you because your career has snowballed and you've worked on some some really impressive projects is there any really like uh, sort of crazy onset stories or think any things you want to share with us um that you, you know that our listeners might find interesting as in what you mean on set or in like post-production uh, yeah, well, stuff. Uh, just yeah, just it, it's sort of in productions as a whole, sort of something that we'd be quite surprised with. Maybe you know things like ne the the Netflix series Black Mirror. Yeah, uh, the whole season was absolutely incredible. Which episode did you work on with that? So on, on Black, the, the the interesting thing with Black season, Black Mirror um, is is that obviously they're they're all standalone stories. They're not like a kind of the story doesn't run through with the same characters throughout so um what even though the charlie brooker who writes and kind of runs the whole show um he's on all episodes but they do get different directors to direct each episode so um so it's quite common that they'll have different sound teams at times doing different episodes as well so i, j I worked purely on one of the episodes of uh, season four which was metalhead which was the um the one starring maxine peak um and it was the black and white one yeah, it was the black and white one. The first time they went for a black and white yeah. look and uh, it had those sort of killer, those kind of crazy dogs, um, robot dogs. So I was brought on, brought on board specifically to work on the dogs. Um, and then there was, there was another effects editor, Christopher Mellon, who was also doing all the, a bunch of the other stuff in the effects side of things. So I just worked purely on that, on that, um, that episode. I mean, it must be great working on sort of sci-fi projects because there's no, people don't know what a robotic dog necessarily sounds like. You have the creativity, surely, to develop different sounds. I know with, like, I think it was Jurassic Park, in order to develop the T-Rex sound, you can probably correct me on this, but they used something like a combination of an elephant and a lion and, like, a fridge. To, <laughs> a to, fridge. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, well, you do. I mean, that's, that's I mean, like, I, I love, I love, you know, in, in sound design or in sound effects editing, you've got two sides of things. One, one of the sides is sort of recreating the realism of, of the world that you're seeing in the film and you know that ranges from anything from like you know wind in the trees and birds and dogs barking and simple doors and cars coming and going and what and whatnot so just recreating the, the realism of of the world as we know it but then on certain projects specifically things like sci-fi as you say or also in horror where sound is sort of often um taken to a different level than beyond realism um they're quite cool because you end up having a bit more of a blank slate as to what you want to 
make these things sound like you know like you said dinosaurs is not something that we've we've kind of been able to see in, in our in our lifetime um and or robots in this case small four-legged robot dogs is not something that we've come across oh, yeah so, i'm sure we will have you seen that boston what's that yes boston yes well, I, oh, I was gonna mention so that yeah <laughs> well basically the the that episode is 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 um and this is, this is not even like a secret. It was even in the press that was based around that basically. Ah, so all the yeah. all the the CGI and the design of the dogs and the concept of the dogs was completely based around those those um, genuine well, com- robots, I guess. Yeah, because exactly like, like you said, those. But if if not, if you guys if someone hasn't seen those, you should check those videos out. It's like Boston um, MIT robot. Dogs yeah, I think I think they've been bought out it. by Google now. But it's yeah, Boston Dyna- Robotics or Dynamics or something. Um, they've been developing these sort of crazy sort of yeah just you know robotics um but they've got one of them or a few of them that are sort of four-legged very much like a dog um so i think that's that was probably the inspiration for charlie brooker actually writing the episode and then definitely like i was sent the, the supervising sound editor on this one who's a, a guy called joachim sundstrom he he brought me on and um he gave me he he had a brief from Charlie Brooker and he gave me all that stuff um, which included those video like links to those videos in terms of the sound and stuff but obviously when you when you listen to the sound on those videos they're, they're quite of they're very functional and and, um, and uh, not so interesting so it was kind of finding the, the balance between creating something a bit more interesting but not too sci-fi because it wasn't meant to be like a crazy you know sci-fi sort of it's not Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that it's it's meant to be gr- kind of grounded in, in the near future how much work goes into these productions or how much work in terms of the sound how long would it take you to to accomplish the sound design for an episode like um, black mirror so in, in tv you, you tend to have like um like most of what i work like I, I i split my year between working on feature films tv series and then the odd tv commercial or like you know a commercial um campaign with with feature films you tend to get more time um per minute or whatever than you would on TV. In TV, it seems to be quite standard that you get, as an effects editor, you'll get two weeks per episode to do all of the effects. Um, How long's an episode? Like a, well, an, like a soap opera, I mean, like a 50-minute episode. Yeah, it's usually between 45 and 60 minutes, depending on, on the channel. Like, I think if it, ITV or BBC will, will vary a bit, but um, it's usually between 45 and 60 Right, so you're up against it, then you've got a deadline. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things. Do like, you need to I was put all the say, hours in. Is that long enough or not really? <laughs> well, I mean, it's I guess I guess it's never long enough, but yeah. you you definitely like I've been doing TV more and more these last few years, and I still do feature films. Um, but um, you, you do develop a certain skill in how you assess a scene and how you sort of start um, focusing on on the essential stuff first, and then once you've got that down, then you, you use any spare time you've got to then go through and do. A finer pass at things, um, but you definitely develop a skill both in terms of assessing what what is needed, and then also in terms of just technical editing and getting through it. Um, on, on this episode of Black Mirror, because of all the the added action and the and the dogs and stuff, which obviously needed more work, there was two of us on board doing two weeks each, so it was basically doubled doubled time. So I got two weeks to work purely on the dogs throughout, which involved both doing some concept work before. We got the locked episode, and then actually doing the the legwork of 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 ed- editing it um, during the once it, we already had the the um, the locked picture. But obviously with with VFX, it's quite different because the, f- the first things I was editing to was uh, was just 
wireframe sort of animatronic stuff or whatever you call it, animatics, um, really wireframe basic stuff. So you don't you don't really see the detailed movements of things. Um, and then eventually, as as the VFX people were, were getting getting more advanced versions of their of their work, then I'd be getting sent. I'll be sent that stuff, and then I could kind of finesse my work in different rounds, so to speak. I was um, just going to say, with VF, things like VFX, would you what differences would you say there have been since you started working on higher end content, higher end TV series and films, compared to the more lower budget indie stuff from when you first started out? Um, in terms of the people, the scale of the work, the general workflows, etc. I mean, one of the things I'd say is that you always you always think you know when you're working on smaller budget things and and um and you and you've got whatever restrictions and you're like oh shit like one day when you know when i when there's more budget and when there's more time and when i'm working with bigger production companies then this will be different or whatever but actually like at least the pace at, the pace at which i've been sort of progressing um you kind of go from from one project to the next and you, you essentially always doing the same work and um, by the time I started doing these bigger shows, I kind of realized that you know I'm doing exactly the same thing on that than I would on a low budget um, production, and and then it goes both ways. On one side, it becomes easier if anything, because then because there is a bit more budget, and more mo most of more often than not, um, that means that they'll hire people that are more established professionals, and and in terms of workflow and and stuff like that, everything's a bit more set. Um, but then on the flip side. You always think, oh, this wouldn't happen on a big production, but then you get to these productions, and there's also always inevitable chaos of things and recuts, and and you're like, shit, this is like on the outside, it looks like this solid thing that just works, but then when you're there, you're like, shit, this is like this is a bit of a mess sometimes as well. Um, it's kind of humbling to know for anyone, especially when we're growing up, that oh, films they've all all these guys are pros, they've got it all figured out. But it's yeah, almost it's comforting to know all. that everyone we're all human, everyone messes yeah. up don't they so well, filmmaking is just professional problem solving isn't it it is it is very much that and um and you know you th throw a bunch of, of different people especially on bigger productions you've just got so many people involved so just keeping that sort of together and everyone pulling in the same direction is, of is often not as easy as as it sounds and then you know you just get people like issues and also when there's more money people just do more stuff so like you know recuts become more of a thing it becomes when i work on smaller budget things which i still do um, it's much more common that I'll be like, okay, we've got minimal budget. We've got to make make the most of the time and money we've got. So let's try and lock the edit. And obviously, there's always going to be some little recut and stuff. But let's try and like respect everyone's time by trying to lock it and commit to that lock. And then you know that way, whatever work we do, we do it once and that's it. But on bigger budget stuff, it's very common for people to be recutting the picture all the way through your post production schedule, even though all the way like into the final mix. So you're mixing the film, and they're still coming up with new versions of the of the edit, which sometimes just means you know re reconforming some of your sessions and and readapting that to the new cut. But sometimes they've added a new scene that needs some new effects work. Um, and going back to what we just said before in terms of VFX, that's definitely one of the things that adds an added sort of pressure to the work because those things don't usually come in properly till the end of the post schedule because they're up against it as well. Um, so what usually happens is like you start getting final versions of those almost during the mix. Um, so you sometimes it's just like stuff you've kind of already seen and kind of designed already, but just a bit more embellished versions of those. But other times they'll be like, hey, we've changed. Like I remember on the Black Mirror thing, like there'd be, I think the last day when I was meant to be on board and um, they sent me the final, final VFX and picture edit lock. 
uh, and they were already mixing. And the supervisor just told me, hey, just check the, this final pictures, make sure you just have a quick look that all your stuff is still working as it was so far, and then before sending us the session so we can start mixing tomorrow. And I, I loaded the session in the, the new picture, and I was like, what the fuck? Everything is like, <laughs> so much of this stuff is like out of sync. Um, so what had happened was that the picture edit hadn't changed, but obviously because of VFX is all animation, they just sometimes they just change the pace of, of, of the dogs walking in a certain shot. And obviously that completely messes up the sync of all the, the movement and the footsteps and the sort of mechanisms of, of their movement. Something as something as easy as just slowing down. I imagine maybe in, in the VFX programs they have a parameter where they can slow down the, the pace or whatever. And something as simple as that, which for them is just a minor adjustment, for me just becomes a massive uh, job. You have to do that manually, right? You have to. Yeah, exactly. To every, every you know, and when it's a four-legged dog, that's four legs instead of two. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly it all adds up, you know. And it's Damn not just the new VFX. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was it was lucky it was lucky that I actually checked because you know I would, I would have thought like you know this was already locked and 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 ready weeks before, but um, it was a good thing I checked. And I spent I had to spend like pretty much till the early hours that night to make sure that I, I get everything in. Have you had working. a lot of instances of that where it's a late turn, late rush, late nights? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to be getting better as I as I progress in my career, and I think it's not not nothing to do with the actual work like workflows. It's just more to do with my man management of them. Um, so I, I tend to kind of having having seen some of the things go go wrong, I try to avoid them. So um, like the feature I'm I'm, I'm working at the moment, um, which I'm supervising and doing the design and effects on, um, they've got VFX also. Uh, so I know there's going to be certain sequences that will depend on the VFX. So, because I know of past experience that I've had these issues, so um, I've 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 basically put together a list of the scenes that I know the VFX will have an impact on the sound, and I'm asking the, the VFX team to prioritize those shots, so I can get work in progress <clears throat> delivered from them, as opposed to just getting a bulk of stuff all at one. Because um, there'll be certain VF, you know certain VFX like simple stuff like you know background replacements or you know sky replacements or removing things or adding some screens content in screens and you know muzzle flashes and that kind of stuff that will not really affect sound much but then you have certain sequences there's there's um there'll be you know there'll be stuff that isn't there at all in the picture at the moment and they'll require sound stuff so by managing those things and trying to get things in the right order you try and kind of minimize the 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 rush at the end but That's i'm sure i'm sure i'll get i'll get, I'll get to the rush anyways yeah. at some point what is that film you're working on at the minute sorry so the film I'm working on at the minute is called Close, um, and it's probably the biggest film I've done as a supervising sound editor. Um, it's a Netflix. It's going to be released as a Netflix original, and it's uh, starring Numi Rapace. I never know how you pronounce her name. She's the um, she was the lead actress in the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo films, the Swedish version, and then she was in Prometheus as well, um, and has been in a few things since. Um, so it's yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool film. It's um, it's called Close, and it's sort of all set in Morocco, um, and it's a sort of a action thriller, a bit like Born Identity esque, and sort of becomes a bit of a Thelma and Louise uh, journey halfway in. Um, and it's part of Netflix's. It's a it's directed by um, um, a director called Vicky Jusen, who is um, uh, and the cast is the, the three leads in, in the in the film are all uh, women. So it's part of um, Netflix's push as well to try and balance their their sort of uh, or push their sort of female-driven productions, not only in terms of acting but also in terms of uh, writers and directors. 
Um, we'll look out for that. We need some women on this podcast. I think we like. It's a bit of a sausage fest podcast. <laughs> We're a few episodes in now. We, we need some women. Yeah, there's plenty of talent, talented ones out there. Definitely in, in every field. So um, we were going to ask about now, like obviously you, it's touch wood, it's going good for yourself. Um, you have been lucky enough to get yourself on the awards as well of late. I believe it was for the short film Food for Thought. Yeah, so the, la- yeah, the last few years actually, have, uh, the last couple of years actually have been, I mean, my whole career has kind of taken off suddenly, like exponentially in the last two years. Because um, after the Sweeney, which was, uh, we said earlier was kind of my first break, and then I moved to London. And then there's a few things that I worked on, like, you know, like Need for Speed, which which I did, and, and um, that Sam Rockwell film that you mentioned, um, A Single Shot. Uh, and, and I was kind of doing... A series of films that were all at that certain similar level um and then some some productions or some clients would kind of disappear like like need for speed which was moved to a different studio so i kind of dropped out of that so i kind of kept on doing a, a series of films that were kind of at that level for a while and it's only been the last two years that sort of sort of off the back of things like black mirror um that i've suddenly kind of jumping up um onto bigger things and it's, it's like everything i think like any any circle of any sphere of work you're in that's that's the sphere in which the people you get to know pass on your name to other people right so every time you move on to slightly a step up in terms of like the circles of people you work with and for then suddenly the people that start hearing about you are doing slightly bigger things so before you realize it you kind of consolidate yourself at that kind of level that's a step up in terms of budgets anyways um is so, there anyone um, you particularly want to work with that you've got your eye on? Have you got any sort of goals and aspirations as a, a sound supervisor? Uh, well, as a, as, like as a sound effects editor, some a supervisor I'd like to work under or? Yeah. Yeah, when I first moved to London, um, like I had like four or five supervising sound editors that I really wanted to work for at some point. Um, two, two of which, no, one of which, yeah, one of which I worked for a fair bit, um, who's actually... Joachim Sandstrom, who is um, the guy who got me onto Black Mirror. Um, he was one of the guys um, that I really kind of look up to. He, he does a bunch of really cool cool um, indie sort of films, and he's done things like Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, he did three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri this year, which which won a bunch of things. Um, and a, a whole list of... Yeah, he won, won the Oscar, didn't it? And um, BAFTA, I think as well yeah anyways he won a bunch of stuff um he was one of the guys i really wanted to work with then there was a guy called paul davies who is uh, another supervising sound editor and sound designer who has done a lot of well, all of the lynn ramsey films so like we need to talk about kevin don't know if you've seen that it's an excellent sound film i, I, have, I, have, I have i have let's check it out let's yeah more recently her, her latest film is called you, you were never really there or here um starring Joaquin phoenix um I've not worked with him yet, but we've we've since become friends. But unfortunately, not yet work, not not yet collaborated with him. I'm sure it'll happen. Um, not in the not too distant maybe yeah. Future. Um, yeah. And then then you've got a few a few bigger supervising sound editors uh, that work on like Paul Davies and Joachim seem to do like the higher end indie stuff. And then you've got like two supervisors or three um, that do like the the blockbuster type stuff. So there's a guy called Glenn Fremantle who uh, runs a company called Sound Twenty Four based in Pinewood. And they've done stuff like Gravity and Everest and every every big sort of film you've you've seen. Um, and he, he was kind of he was involved with this Danny Boyle project. He does all of Danny Boyle's things, 
But uh, I wasn't brought on onto that one by him, so I didn't really work. I, I can't say I technically worked with or for him in this way, but kind of kind of indirectly, I guess. <laughs> but maybe someday. Certainly heading in the right direction, because I believe it's it. Is it the Jussie Awards, which is like the Finnish equivalent for the BAFTAs or the Oscars that you've been nominated for? Yeah, yeah. So I worked on a Finnish feature, which is my first Finnish Finnish film to, to have worked on, which is kind of a, a conscious attempt to do some Finnish stuff because I'm half half Finnish myself. Um, so I worked on this this film called The Thick Lashes of Lauri Mantovara, which is uh, the debut it's a mouthful, feature. Isn't by... it? <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't help that the, the name is like a Finnish name with a bunch of weird Finnish letters as well. <laughs> um, it was a, yeah the debut feature of a, a director called Hanna Lena Hauru, um, which went on to get nominated in various categories at the Finnish UC Awards, which, like you said, are the Finnish Film Academy Awards. So, like the Baftas here or the Oscars in the US, uh, the, the Finland's National Sort of Film Academy Award. So yeah, we, we were very surprised to get a nomination for Best Sound at this year's um, awards. So I went down for, down to those in March. We didn't win, uh, but it was an awesome experience to just go out there and and be sort of involved in such a, a cool event. Um, Congratulations! So I know, amazing, amazing, mate. How did it feel to like to be within the awards, to be winning awards, to be nominated for the work that you do? Does that is that an overrated feeling or? I mean, it's I don't know. I, I guess I mean I, like this is the first like higher end award I, I'd been nominated for. I, I won a couple of awards with that short film um, that you mentioned, Food for Thought, uh, which again, if, if someone's not seen it, check it out. Um, Food for Thought, short film, and it's a very sound driven film as well. So you can see why people kind of latch onto the, the sound work because it's, it's obviously got great sound, <laughs> great sound anyways, even if I do say so. Um, <laughs> but the, the actual story, a bit like A Quiet Place, is very much built around the, the idea of sound. So sound is kind of built into the story, embedded into the script itself, which always helps. Um, so yeah, I won a few awards for that, for the sound. And then sort of, um, obviously it always feels nice to, to be nominated or to, or to win an award. But um, I, I guess the main, the main thing I've realized from the awards is the fact that um, you basically get a few weeks in some, some form of a spotlight. Um, so you'll have like a certain amount of like interviews you get to do or people you get approached by. Um, so I've, I've definitely had people approach me directly through having heard the, um, the short film, for example, through the awards kind of marketing or kind of promotion. Um, so, so I think the, the main thing I've got from the awards is kind of, it's a, it's a slight kind of moment in, in some kind of spotlight where people notice your work. And then fortunately for me, has led to actual direct follow-up work um, as such. Amazing. I mean, like at this point in your career now that you are at the stage you are, what advice would you give to all those people who want to achieve similar things? Um, so is always it kind of it's a cliche question, but it's a cliche question, and you always get cliche answers with them as well. Like you always get the answer, like you know, just keep at it, and yeah, you know. If, um, but I mean, I, I guess that's kind of like, that is kind of those answers are kind of true. I mean, like when I when I first graduated up in, up in Manchester. And you know the, the first few years, I, I had to find a way of of I guess the hardest the hardest time was the first like two to four years, where initially, I mean, I mean mainly on a financial level because initially, like I said earlier, I was I was paying my bills with other things than film sound, um, and it, I think it's down to anyone to kind of figure out how they can manage to sort of support themselves for the first few years while they start building their career because unfortunately for 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 us working in film in this country at least because of the saturation you have with people 
wanting to work in film and or already working in film, it's um, you're expected to kind of go through a whole phase where where you're working on on stuff for nothing or near near, near to nothing. Um, and that doesn't apply just to to me as a sound designer. Directors will be doing going through the same thing themselves. So you'll be you'll be approached by people who aren't just being cheeky and not wanting to pay you, but are actually in the same boat themselves where they want to do their first short or their first feature. Yeah, because you're self-employed, right? So you, you go from job to job and yeah. you, I'm assuming you get, well, hopefully you don't, but there are laws within the industry where you might be looking for work. Or have you been quite fortunate? Have you gone from one job to the other? Uh, no, I mean, I've, I've, I've certainly not in the early days. I mean, and, and even if I did in the early days, it would be from one unpaid job to another. So it didn't really make a difference in terms of finances. Um, so th- definitely the first few years, I had to totally rely on um, other work to kind of keep my bills covered. Um, and I want, initially there was, you know, bars and restaurants and stuff. And then I got lucky in Manchester that the school I was a student at early on, um, eventually they, they, they kind of asked me to come on board to do some some teaching, just like software stuff, you know, um, teaching Pro Tools and some stuff like that. But that meant that I could, A, work in something that was at least relevant to film, and B, also gave me access to using the studios of the of the, the film school at the time, which at the time was really invaluable because, you know, I, I hadn't invested or didn't have the money to invest in proper equipment to work f- with or from so um that was that kind of helped but i guess you know that varies for everyone you i think everyone finds a, a way of supporting themselves in the first few years and if you get over the first you know two or three years i guess um then then suddenly you kind of you step onto like for me moving to london those two years after i graduated and that was the first time i quit anything that wasn't film sound related and purely started earning a living with film sound uh, and even then, the first like the first two years, I was I had some savings from before, and I kind of ate away at those for the first two years. And it took me about a year and a half or two to kind of get to a point where I was breaking even. Partly because London's so expensive, anyways. But um, I did find myself with periods, sometimes you know, extended periods where I hadn't, I didn't have any work to do. Um, so it takes takes a while to kind of not only get your skills up, but also establish yourself within a a new city and a new sort of um network of so, people yeah so yeah exactly yeah um because i was doing i was building a small network in manchester and then obviously coming to london i kept on working with some of them but inevitably because you're not in the same place anymore you kind of some of them drop out um so it took me a few years to break into into the new network and build the build the, the new bridges um and I, i'd say then like two years after coming to london i was definitely in a place where i was kind of uh, breaking even um and now the last two years has sort of exponentially gone up and now it's quite common for me to be booked up like nine to twelve months in advance. Really? Um, so at the moment, at the moment, I'm booked up till pretty much till the end of the year on on things. Some of them are are, are unconfirmed or like penciled stuff. Um, but yeah, like Touchwood, it seems to be like the last couple of years. You kind of you're not like finishing a job and and seeing what comes next and having those few weeks or month of nothing. Yeah, yeah. So do you bill as a day rate, um, um, or do you work to go on block bookings as a project? Right, it kind of it, it kind of varies um, depending on the projects. I mean, with with TV series, you tend to be on a on a day rate, and there tends to be a fairly standardized sort of um, rates for TV because it's all like anything that goes on TV, any TV drama is already commissioned and already sort of has an, an agreed like an established budget. Um, on the film side of things, it's a lot more wide ranging and depends on what level of film you're working on. So if you're working on a blockbuster, you'll get a certain amount. If you're working on a low to no budget indie then obviously you, you won't be getting that and then everything in between 
so you, usually on if, if I'm a, if I'm born as an effects editor, then usually uh, the way we, we negotiate the rate is is like yeah essentially a day rate or a weekly rate, and then you're brought on for X amount of weeks, um, and then you do the work, deliver it, and get paid. Um, but on the projects I, su- I I supervise, part of the supervising um, work is actually um, you're involved in pitching for a project initially or being approached by a producer and a director, and usually that car- that leads to to initial pitching pitching meeting, which usually involves uh, being sent the script. Uh, if it's directors you haven't worked with before and don't have a working re- relationship with, and you haven't been involved like from the early stages, um, usually what happens they'll send you a script. You read the script, then you'll meet up, um, and in that meeting you'll kind of discuss creative ideas with the director and then the producer you'll discuss budgets and quotes and and then you'll kind of put together a quote based on the team that you think you need for the film and then i'll pick like a dial editor a mixer a you know foley team and then then you get it negotiate that quote uh, as a f- package deal usually and then based on what you can what, what quote you end up getting then you kind of see how much time you can hire each individual for in your team and stuff like that Cool, man. I mean, a quick one, uh, just for the people in sound. What softwares and plugins do you recommend that people should start focusing on if they want to get um, these areas? I mean, the, the main tool that I, I work with in terms of like the day-to-day um, main thing I work with is Pro Tools, which is Avid Avid's um, software. Um, there's other pro, there's other software out there that do the same thing, um, like Nuendo or things like Reaper or things like that, but Pro Tools just seems to have consolidated itself as a, as as kind of the standard. Um, so, despite many people not liking Avid and the way Avid are taking Pro Tools <laughs> in the last few years, um, it still seems to be the the thing that everyone uses. Um, and like de- definitely in the case of when I'm working out, you know, I'm, like you said, I'm self-employed. Um, well, I've I've set up as a, as a company like a year and a half ago now, but essentially still self-employed in terms of the way I operate um, and when you're self-employed, you're being brought on by studios uh, and by sound supervisors. So you have to kind of obviously work within the platforms they are working in. So in that, in that, in that, with that in mind, they all tend to work with Pro Tools most of the time. So for me to be employable, um, I definitely need to know Pro Tools as my main software. Um, I guess if I was supervising something and I was doing all fully contained within my own little world, then I could probably pick something else. But um, but I, I I love Pro Tools so, and I know it inside out. So um, that's kind of what I use. And then I use a software called Soundminer, which is like a sort of library database thing. So that's kind of my connection. Soundminer is, is what connects me to my sound effects library. Which as a sound effects editor, you're only as good as your sound effects library as well. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of the program. I didn't know that you I, own. So you own the sound effects, and then yeah, you so, use your own so, library rather than like yeah. a studio library. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I am the studio in my case because I'm I'm self-employed. Um, so I, I work from my own little studio. So I, here in London, I've got a I rent a room within a a, um, a post facility, and uh, I've got all my equipment in this room. Um, so I don't get brought into s- different studios based on the jobs. I kind of work from my place all the time from my oh, studio. Right, they come to you, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, th- yeah, they don't they don't necessarily come to me. Like I work f- on my own from here. Um, but then, like you know, if like on something like the Danny Boyle thing, I'll I'll be sent the material and I'll work on my from my studio. But then the mix will happen somewhere in Soho or Pinewood or wh- wherever they end up mixing it. Um, but so yeah, the, the, all the library stuff is something that is personal to to you. I'm curious. Um, how, can you do you know off the top of your head how big your sound library is? 
it's getting close to six terabytes now. Oh my god! That's <laughs> which, sound files. That's which, yeah, which for sound files is quite it's quite a lot. It's probably it's not it's probably like five and a half or something, and there's probably a lot of crap in there as well. But um, yeah, sound library, sound, sound library. It's one of the things my mentor Tim had 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 kind of hammered into our heads early on was the fact that if you're going to be working as a sound effects editor or a sound designer, you you've got to be collecting sounds from from the get-go and get organized i'm sure as well Probably key. yeah also yeah also that i mean I, I spend a lot of time out recording um sound effects i've got i'm invested into my own sound effects recording rig uh, and sometimes i'll do stuff specifically for a project like um other times i'll just kind of not have like have a bit of downtime or just like do it as a hobby or take take some recording kit with me on on vacations and record stuff knowing that someday it might be useful and then also like these days, there's there's so many different people like myself um, recording small libraries, like very niche little sound effects libraries, which you can then buy through different like online sort of um, portals and stuff. So um, so I, I spent quite a lot of money throughout the year as well buying all these little libraries and things. Um, so on this feature film that I'm supervising at the moment, close. Um, there's some there's a company called Tonsturm who who are based in in Germany and they do some like excellent sound libraries and just turns out that they'd been they'd done quite an exhaustive really high quality 5.1 recordings um in morocco which is where the film is based so i was able to buy that and sort of it was it was so well like it just happened to be that a lot of the locations they recorded were very similar to the ones in the film so i probably couldn't have done a better job even if i had gone da- down there myself amazing what was that um, company again sorry i didn't quite catch they're, they're called tonsturm how do you spell that t-o-n-s-t-u-r-m okay cool or yeah, um, and there's a bunch of other ones. Um, companies like Boom. My mentor has a company called Hiss and Aurora, which also um, sell their own his own libraries, which are all very high quality stuff. Um, That's so a great it's quite name for a company as well. <laughs> Hiss and Aurora, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, me and a friend actually, my friend uh, Rick and I have just also launched our own little um, sound effects label, so to speak, with the intention of re- releasing our own little libraries. Uh, our name is If a Tree Falls. Uh, don't, know if you, don't know if you know the. Uh, I don't yes. get it. <laughs> phrase. So, so yeah, a bit of a boutique boutique name for uh, what we hope to be a little boutique company on the side. An extra revenue stream. Exactly. But um, but yeah, in terms of effects, for example, today the, the film I was working on now, um, halfway into the film, there's a car that features quite heavily, and it turns out that the production, the producer, and the director told me that they had actually bought the car for the for the shoot as opposed to renting it. So. When I asked them about it, they were like, yeah, yeah, we've still got the car. It's parked in a garage somewhere in, in Morocco, in this town. Um, so eventually I kind of asked around a bit and managed to get some extra budget to go and record the car. So I was hoping to go myself, but then because of the schedule, uh, I found someone local who actually today, just today, did the session. Um, so he managed to access the car and find a quiet spot in the desert and go off and record it. So then, that, you know, that I'll use that in the film and then that will inevitably become part of my library for future use as well. Um, so you know, if you do that on each film you work on, eventually, as the years go by, you start getting quite a nice, nice bespoke library. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for your time. I don't want to sort of keep you too long. It's we're approaching the hour mark here. It's yeah, been, man. it's been brilliant. Thanks very much for sharing all that. I mean, sure. where can people learn more about you now if they wanted to reach out to you or just follow what you're up to? Uh, well, I've, I've got a website which is um, my name dot com cool. uh, which we is shall put that. we shall put that in the little notes when we do share yeah. this episode so. um, and I, to be honest like, I, I use I mean I'm, I'm a bit of a, a Facebook whore if that's if that's appropriate <laughs> to say um, some 
some would say I use it too much or I post too much on it. But um, I've I found things like social media, especially for someone like myself who operates as a sole trader, I, f- I find that, you know, bigger companies will, will put money into marketing and advertising them, their, their services. I don't really do that, but I use social media as a as a way of sort of doing the equivalent of that without really spending any any money on it. Um, and so what that means is that things like Facebook or Twitter um, or even Instagram lately, um, but especially Facebook, I'll, I'll, I'll use partly for personal use, but I'll also add a lot of like professional colleagues um, that work in sound, but also just like people I'm working with in terms of directors, producers, um, and even people I want to work with in the future. So, you know, I'll, I'll quite unashamedly just like add people on Facebook and, and openly be like, hey, I hope you don't mind the, the unsolicited ad, um, but you know, you seem cool. I've, I've seen some of your work. Um, I'd love to stay in touch. And usually they're like, ah, cool, definitely. And then before you know it, like some, because you're posting stuff about your projects, then I find it's like it's a more, it's a less obtrusive way of keeping in people's minds. Like I wouldn't email someone and say, hey, look, I'm just working on this cool film, say Morocco, blah, blah, blah. But like after the session, the, the effects recording session today, I got a few pictures, posted them on my Facebook. So any, any people that I've, I've worked with or might work with in the future will see that and they'll be like, oh, cool. That seems cool. He's doing something there. Um, so you kind of keep in people's minds. I find this yeah. quite cool. You're on their radar then, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. And you're not like in their face either. They can just keep scrolling down. They don't have to. It's not like you're forcing them to, to kind of... I think it's called, is it like attraction marketing where you're not necessarily selling, you're just showing cool stuff, cool stuff, cool stuff. So you're almost guilting people into... I think yeah, and not even just that, just just keeping people just like keeping them in people's yeah. minds. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and also the same thing with things like awards, you know, like, you know, I, I could, you, you could have the most crazy achievements but if no one knew it then that would not necessarily lead to any more work and you know this is a business as well so we do want to lead these things to lead to more work so you know if if you don't say it then no know it be proud so, of your accomplishments no. and shout about it okay be proud of your accomplishments exactly yeah as, as long as you do it in a way that's, that you're not being Absolutely. an asshole or not being like pretentious or you know no one wants that but as long as you're doing it in a way that you're kind of appreciating it and kind of also hopefully uh, just being being nice about it, then people don't mind that. I think. Um, so yeah. So all, all that to say that you can add me on Facebook if, <laughs> if you so want. You might uh, be getting a thousand Facebook requests. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's cool. It's cool. You never know what like where things lead up to. Cool, man. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything before we part ways? Do you think there's anything else you'd like to share with people to um, impart some wisdom? Don't know, really. Um, I guess my, my, main, my main thing in terms of like for those that do sound or for directors and producers that work with sound designers is, is, um, is, is, is to, to learn to think about sound as, as a storytelling device and as a storytelling contributor as opposed to just a, a technical thing that happens where you clean up the dialogues and add the footsteps and the, and the, and the sound effects. So a lot of people have the perception of, of sound posts where, I mean, it's getting a lot better these days is people are having a much better awareness of what sound can contribute to projects but quite often you're seen as this sort of technical um part of the process that you know any, kind of any, anyone can do and is kind of just something you have to get through to make your film sound all right um but that kind of is the case in, in, in many projects and you kind of do just the, the obvious sort of recreation of reality and making sure everything sounds good but um there's so much more that sound can bring to, to projects um if you're getting if you get the, get them or it or whoever's supervising it involved uh, early on, ideally before the shoot. Um, and one of the things I've been doing, especially in the last this last few months, is I'm reading a lot of books on screenwriting. Um, and you know, even though it's not, nothing to do with sound directly, but 
when I work with directors, especially as a supervisor, um, you know, they're all about the script. They're all about the characters and the script, and they've been living with that script and that story for ages. So for me, being able to talk with directors in that kind of language and understanding story structure and, and you know, character development and, and how that, the terminology behind that and the, and the way the process kind of goes usually means that I can kind of connect on a creative level and not just be some techie sound guy, you know, that's um, talking about plugins. <laughs> yeah, great. Because no, one's, no one really cares about You speak that. the same language then, don't you? Exactly, yeah. And, you know, obviously as sound people, we like to geek out on, on the latest toys and plugins and sound libraries and mics and whatnot. But um, essentially no one really cares about that outside of us sound people and, and no one should care, really. It should all be about understanding the story and trying to support the emotional sort of journey that every film or, or sort of... Uh, TV series or even video game has. Um, I, I was attending a, this really cool talk a few weeks ago here in London by um, this American sound or Canadian sound designer called Paula Fairfield, who's um, she's known for like, being the lead sound designer on the Game of Thrones um, TV series. And her talk was awesome. She was giving a talk. She, I mean, she does all the all the, the special sound design, so not the sound, of, not the kind of realistic sound effects or anything. So she does all the dragons, the White Walkers, all these sort of all the sort of more sort of the ones where you've got to make sounds up for things that don't really exist. Um, and it was very interesting because often you go to these talks and they're like, everyone would be asking, oh, so what plugin did you use for this? Or what different sounds did you use? Did you mix to get this sound or whatever? And she couldn't really care less for what, I mean, obviously she spoke about it a bit, but she was all about story and, and emotion and even like making up her own little backstories for the different dragons and sort of that would give her um sort of a foundation to then develop almost a language um and an emotional language for them and also an emotional journey as they go from being small dragons to older dragons and then you know spoiler alert as they become <gasps> nice ice thing or whatever all, all that stuff you know so all that she was she was talking all she was talking about was story and emotion and she was like at the end of the day if we need the audience to connect with these with these characters, you know, and, and then she was playing clips and stuff. And I, you know, I have watched through most of the series myself and I do remember a bunch of, of these moments where the dragons are featured sometimes in quite tender emotional moments and you, they do turn it like they, they are moving moments in places and you do realize that actually, yeah, the sounds are cool, but actually someone's put a lot of time and effort into understanding what the emotional arc of the, of the story is and also then finding ways sonically to try and convey that and support that. And actually, in the, case, in the case of doing doing sounds for things like dragons or things that don't exist, even like robot dogs uh, or anything that is like a VFX type thing, you're essentially becoming the actor because you, you're creating the performance in a way. So it's kind of interesting, that, that concept of you become the actor. I mean, the, the VFX department become the equivalent of the physical acting, but then you become the equivalent of the delivery of dialogue, basically. So it's quite, it's quite an interesting position to be in where you, you kind of... you you have to become that character to, to then give them a voice. So yeah, it's all about story and supporting the story and less about just uh, fixing things and, and uh, technical stuff. Beautifully put. Thank you very much, mate. Awesome. Thank you very much. Cheers for that.